Will you pray with me? Father, two things we know for sure. We are great sinners. And Jesus Christ is a great Savior. We're staking all our hopes on that today, Lord. Because all we know is how to run from you. And like Adam and Eve, Lord, when we sin, we, we just somehow try to get away. As if there were anywhere we could go that you couldn't find us. And we thank you that you have not stopped pursuing. That you are fully aware of our brokenness, Lord. And you're the only one who can transform it into something beautiful. Lord, we love to sing about that. And we would just ask you to do it again. For us, your people, your broken people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. Happy uh, Memorial Day to you. I get on a plane later this afternoon to go to the mountains, the Ozark Mountains of Missouri. I'm going to meet my dad there. My little brother and I are going. We go up there to see the cemeteries this weekend. My dad always goes. Sometimes we join him and, and we'll go to a little cemetery called Brushy Knob Cemetery, not a mile from where my dad was born, where all of his family is buried. And I remember that place because I was there some years ago walking around looking at tombstones. There's Aunt Balta, remember friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you may be. Prepare for death and follow me. And walking by and looking and here's Stephen, my oldest cousin on the Brookside. I never knew Stephen. He died within a few days of his birth. And there, there's a cemetery there and, and I remember being there a couple years ago Crazy story, but I lost my soul in that cemetery. I, was, I pulled some old boots out of the closet before I flew up there trying to avoid the chiggers, put on boots and loosed, laced them up on the outside of my, of my jeans, and my dad had some duct tape. I'm not making this up, and we, we were trying to, and as I was walking along, the sole of my boot just came off. I guess it dry rotted, in the, and, and my, my cousin was standing there. He said, you just lost your soul in the cemetery which is troubling for a pastor or for anybody else, I suppose. A little bit later, another cemetery, I lost the other one. And so I'm going in Red Wings this time. I think I'm going to be okay. But, but I was just thinking about that time and how when you look at cemeteries and you look at tombstones, you realize there's a story behind each one of those people. Something happened. How did they get there? Oh, I, I know they died. That's how they got there. But, but how did that happen? And so some of them lived into their 90s, and we look at that and say, whoo, I hope I tie into that genetic strand, you know, 90s, that looks good, and then you'll see one with a flag on it or, or a cross, and you realize somebody died between 1941 and 1945 or in the late 60s, and they were in their 20s, and you realize, so maybe they were at war somewhere fighting to, to honor their country. And we wonder why. Why would they die? Why did they die then? 
In fact, um, when we look in the scriptures, we discover that the how question is, is a little bit easier than the why question. But there's a, a story in a song, actually in a hymn form in the book of Isaiah that tells about a servant who suffered and died. And you can't read it without wondering why did he die? Kyle Yates called it the Mount Everest of the Messianic prophecies. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning? Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read a few verses in 52. That's where the the fourth servant song of Isaiah. We've studied the other three. I know we have since I've been here in these years that I've served you. Look back at my records. I couldn't find a time when I preached this one. So today's the day. Let's stand together and hear the word of the Lord as our God speaks to us in the scriptures today. Isaiah 52, in this section that's so much about hope and comfort starting in chapter 40. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles and run and not grow weary and walk and not be faint. He tells about a a servant in chapter 42 who will be a light to the Gentiles. A servant in chapter 49 who will bring justice. A servant in chapter 50 who has to have his ear open so that he becomes the ear of a disciple so that he can speak a comforting word to others. But it's in chapter 52 that it all comes to fruition. Let me read it to you in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance, his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord 
And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In the New Testament, Luke tells a story of a man who's been up to worship in Jerusalem. He's on his way home to Ethiopia, but somehow church was not enough. (laughs) Worship at the temple for the festival wasn't enough. Can you believe this? His God traveled. So he took his God with him. He opened up a scroll, and he was there in the presence of God, riding down a desert road. And Philip heard God's voice say, go to that spot. God didn't tell him why, and he got there. And he hears this man, an Ethiopian official, sort of the treasurer of Ethiopia, and he's riding in this chariot with his retinue, with his entourage, and he's reading this scroll out loud, and Philip hears him, and Philip runs up to the chariot, and he says, so who's this about? It's really a good question. In fact, if you ask people of different faiths, what the servant songs are about. Somebody might say to you, for instance, from the Jewish tradition might say to you, so the suffering servant is is Israel. Israel is the one who suffers. And they might point to the first three suffering songs where you've got God and the servant. And you read it closely and it sounds like, well, maybe the servant is the people of Israel who've endured a lot of suffering. But then you get to verse six and what you see is he says at the end of it, the Lord has laid on him, that servant, the iniquity of us all. So it's not just two in the story, right? It's not just God and Israel, right? But it's God, us all, which I would take to mean Israel, the people of God, and then on him, God has laid the iniquity of us all. And all the Ethiopian eunuch wanted to know was, so who is he? I know God and I know Israel, but who is the he who bears the sin and the sorrow and the suffering of the people? And Philip joins him in the chariot. And before they finish their time together, they step down into water. And Philip baptizes him because he believes. In our earlier service, we had the privilege of baptizing. I think this is the seventh or eighth family from the country of Iran in the last couple of years. I don't know how to explain that except to say God is working in an amazing way. And here was this beautiful husband and wife who brought their little boy here. And I remember we gave them a Farsi Bible. And I said to him not long ago, hey, we need to get a cup of coffee. And he said, good. And he held up the Bible I gave him and said, I've got some questions In a meeting with Pastor Eddie, he discovered answers to his questions, or should I say he discovered the answer. And the answer was the one whom Isaiah was writing about. I'm just wondering if you find your suffering and the weight of your sin unbearable, what is your plan? 
Who will bear this for you? Who will take your sin away? You know you can't carry it for your whole life. So what's your plan? And if you don't have a plan, in absence of a plan, might I point you to God's plan and show you in the story of sheep that that all we like sheep have gone astray. But there was a lamb who took the iniquity of us all. John R. W. Stott captures this in his book, The Cross of Christ, when he says, for the essence of sin is, is humans substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. So the first substitution we see is that all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. This is uh, the, the height of rebellion. It is the reality of sin. It's, it's individual, but it's also corporate, right? Just like Isaiah's personal experience in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, where he says, uh, in the presence of a holy God, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember his confession? And what's the next thing he says? For I live among a people of unclean lips. I am not in this alone. Notice it's all we like sheep. Because sometimes we, we say all they. We know who the sheep who've gone astray are. All they. All they like sheep have gone astray. But that's not the word in verse 6. It's all we. So it's, it's individual, but it has corporate implications, corporate complications, I might add. We're in this together, and we're like sheep who have wandered willfully. And for centuries, shepherds have worked hard to keep sheep enclosed. So in the old days, they used a rod or a staff, and Jesus would say, I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the door. And sometimes the shepherd would just lie down across the entrance. I had a youth minister who did that years ago at a lock-in. The boys were on one side and the girls on the other. And he just lay down right there between us. He became the door of the sheep to keep the sheep where they ought to be. But sometimes um, sheep are craftier than we know. So in England, they developed this uh, hoof-proof grid to keep the sheep in. So the shepherds can go get a cup of coffee if they want to. They got the grid. It's not unlike our cattle guards. You know what I'm talking about, cattle guards. You've seen them on ranches here in Texas. And, and the sheep can't cross them because if they step in, they'll get caught. And so they, they don't even try. But one sheep was very enterprising. And he surveyed the hoof-proof grid long enough that he figured out a plan. He lay down and rolled across it. Free at last. And the other sheep were watching. And they followed suit. And it wasn't long before in Yorkshire, England, you had sheep in everybody's garden eating the, the food and the flowers that the people were trying to grow, and they'd bring them back. But once a sheep goes astray, it's easier. Have you noticed the second time? And before long, the sheep were all going, and they were trying to figure out a system, a plan to, to overcome the wandering of the sheep. And we can laugh at, at sheep who who figure out a way to get out. But pretty soon we have to weep at our own wandering, the reality of our own sin, which causes our hearts to wander like prodigals, to run away from the Father who loves us. 
Some years ago, they had a contest in England. They asked the question, what is wrong with the world? How would you answer that? You've probably got an answer to that. What's wrong with the world? I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. Those people or these people or that or this or that. or That's what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton won the contest with a two-word essay. In answer to the question, what's wrong with the world, he wrote, I am. And the issue of sheep going astray is that we're substituting our plan for God's plan for our lives. There's some TV show. I haven't watched it yet. Maybe you have. I don't know. It doesn't look like something I'd want to watch. I don't know. But it's American Gods or something. And then there's a flashing neon. And when the light goes out, American Gods becomes, am I God? Well, that's what substitution of ourselves for God becomes. I become my own I am. I become what's wrong with the world and certainly what's wrong with my own world. But thankfully, in Stott's analogy, there's not just one substitution, people substituting ourselves for God. What did the serpent say to to Adam and Eve? You eat this and you'll be like God. You'll be like God. That's the one substitution. But there's another substitution, thankfully, and that is when God substitutes himself for us, when God takes our sorrows and our griefs, it's, it's there. It's interesting. It says, when, when one would see how deeply this servant suffers, they would instinctively turn their face away from it. Like, like the phantom at the opera if he removed the mask. <gasps> we gasp to think about this one who is so so mistreated, suffers so greatly. It's, it's unbelievable in a way, he says in verse 1. Who, who would believe this? Who would believe? And he's despised and he's rejected. And then we come to the question, why? And verse 4 says, it's our pain and our suffering that he takes and he bears. In verse 5, it's our transgressions, our willful sin, our iniquities that, that he's pierced and crushed for And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's oppressed and afflicted. And whoever this is, whoever this servant is, he suffers, it's clear, violently. He suffers volitionally. It sounds like it's his choice to do this. He suffers vicariously for us on our behalf. And ultimately, you can see it at the beginning of this five stanza hymn, and at the end, he suffers victoriously. He sees the light of life. He sees his offspring. So whoever it is who dies also comes back to life. Who in the world could he be talking about who would die for us? In his letter to the Romans, Paul said, maybe for a good man, somebody might dare to die, but but who would die? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John Lennox is an impressive Oxford uh, professor in the area of mathematics, brilliant mind, brilliant Christian. He was uh, looking at one of the concentration camps on a tour in Europe some years ago, and he was with a young woman who had lost her family in the concentration camp, and they were just seeing 
the grotesque suffering and, and Mingala and what he had done and just looking at all of that, this young Jewish woman turned to John Lennox and said, and what does your religion make of this? And he thought for a moment, I dare not minimize the suffering of this person. I don't want to act like I understand. My family has not been through what her family has been through. And finally he said, I have an answer, but I don't know if you want to hear it. She said, fire away. He said, well, I am a Christian, and I believe that Yeshua, Jesus, was the Messiah, and that he suffered so that he could enter into our suffering and pain and pay the price for our sins, but it doesn't end there. He also rose to life again, and he died for us so that someday in his presence, the suffering which we endure here will finally be be in some way explained in the presence of the one who experienced ultimate suffering for us. And he said she was standing in a doorway and he could see from the light there was a silhouette behind her in the shape of a cross. And she looked at John Lennox and said, and why has nobody ever told me about my Messiah before? For us, for us. In Israel at Gordon's Calvary, we were looking up at that skull, that skull-shaped rock up above us there, and a British guide in a beautiful voice was explaining about the crucifixion of Christ, and one of the ladies on our tour, I don't think she was in our group, but she was in the tour, and, and Joshua Hardo was there, and, and she, she looked up and she said, where, where on that hill? Tell me where was Jesus crucified? And finally the guide said, I can't tell you where. Ma'am, I can't tell you where. But I can tell you why. It was for our sin. For our sin, He was willing to die. And Christians have believed that, that even though we substituted ourselves for God in our sin, God substituted Himself for us on the cross. Melito of uh, Sardis back in the second or third century wrote this so beautifully. It's in the Scriptures, of course, but, but I was just thinking, how far back did Christians believe that Jesus' death was a substitutionary sacrifice for ours? And this is in the early centuries of the church. He wrote and preached these meaningful words. The Lord suffered for the sake of Him who suffered. He was bound for the sake of him who was imprisoned. He was judged for the sake of the condemned. He was buried for the sake of the buried. So come all families of human beings who are defiled by sins and receive remission of sins. And hear Jesus say, for I am your remission. I am the Passover of salvation. I am the lamb sacrificed for your sake. I am your ransom. I am your life. I am your resurrection. I am your light. I am your salvation. I am your king. And hear him say, I lead you toward the heights of heaven. I will show you the eternal father. I will raise you up with my right hand. And if somehow on the climb of life you've misplaced your soul, Isaiah brings us good news. 
Not on the Mount Everest, not in the Ozarks, but on that hill called Calvary, God found your soul and brought it back with Him. And if you'd like to have it back, He would love to give it to you today as you give your whole life to Him. And when we realize what Christ did on the cross, we can never again wonder, is God really for us? Oh, He is for us. He is for you. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the perfect sacrifice of Your perfect spotless Lamb, Your Son, We thank You that You love so much that You sent Him to us and that You were in Christ reconciling us and the whole world to Yourself. And help us, Lord, I pray, to taste and see that You are good. Your suffering is a sure call to repentance on our part. That we might leave our wandering And instead of running from You, that right now, Lord, we might run to You. God, give us the grace to come back to the cross where mercy there is great and grace is free. And multiply Your pardon to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.